Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Mary Ellen Iskandarian has done it all. As the president and CEO of Women's World Banking and as an alumna of the International Finance Corporation, she's been at the heart of global efforts aimed at giving low-income women in developing countries access to the financial tools necessary for achieving security and prosperity. And much of that work has focused on microfinance, the field of finance that specializes in providing microloans to people often living on the margins but seeking to launch small businesses. And now she's come out with a new book entitled There's Nothing Micro About a Billion Women. And we at The Beat couldn't be more thrilled. You see, Mary Ellen is a veteran of the show and wowed us with her stories of not only her work, but also her clients and the difference that can be made when thinking creatively about serving the unbanked. So in her return in this episode, I'll be quizzing her on her new book, which is as much a walk through business strategy as it is a collection of narratives. And I'll be asking what it all means, especially in a world of rising interest rates and risk. It's the kind of stuff geared to make us all smarter and better people, especially as we try to lean in on technology and the common good. Mary Ellen, it's great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be with you. Okay, well, I think we are just going to jump right in it. I mean, you lead Women's World Banking, one of the foremost players in microfinance for women. What prompted you, I mean, you've done everything, uh, what's prompted you to write this book? So I really wanted to place the work of Women's World Banking, where a 43-year-old global NGO have been since we were born, we've been working to provide access to financial services to low-income women in the developing world. And I wanted to put that work in the context of both a broader research environment. There's some really fascinating stuff that's going on. One of the things that just used to piss me off so much when I joined Women's World Banking 15 years ago was that, you know, how does micro, how do these micro loans have an impact on the macro economy. And now you've got, you know, nothing less than the IMF coming out and saying financial inclusion and bringing the most excluded populations into the formal financial system is macro critical and is really the only way we get to truly inclusive growth and not growth that just continues to perpetuate inequalities. You know, microfinance, I've always found is just supremely interesting. I mean, back even before I, I went to Georgetown, I was over on, on Vanderbilt's campus. And so, you know, the work of Muhammad Yunus, you know, one of the sort of leading founding thinkers on microfinance was a bit of the lore that would remain on, on campus. And really, as you said, thinking about what small things can catalyze very big differences, both in, you know, in, in finance and even in the global economy. This book seems to really get into the details as to not only the, the upside, but also getting into some of those challenges. And, and, and you do talk about some of the challenges standing in the way of women's financial inclusion. 
I, I guess, again, for the running start, for those who haven't read the book yet, um, what are some of those barriers? And again, what do those barriers mean and how do they relate to larger questions of not just inclusion, but again, specifically financial inclusion? Great question. I guess I look at the barriers as kind of at, at three levels. So, you know, what are the barriers that women themselves face? We do see really everywhere in the world, including in this country, uh, Chris, that women either feel a perception of or actually are less financially and digitally literate. And that combination, both financial and digital, is absolutely essential to inclusion, financial inclusion as we move on. And so finding good ways to make sure that women have the confidence and the, the knowledge, skills, awareness, as we as we always call it in the financial literacy um, space, is is probably barrier number one. So making sure that they've got that that knowledge, that confidence to, to use whatever products are available to them. Then we have barriers, frankly, at the financial service providers themselves. And that, again, that kind of annoys me the most, perhaps, in that they don't see a business case for serving this client base. And probably one of the most systemic ways, because I think you were really looking for more systemic approaches, is the majority of developing country regulators on the one side and financial service providers on the other don't report sex disaggregated data. So they don't know which of their clients are men, which are women, which uh, products they're using, how they're using them, where they're using them. And so how can you really make, you know, considered decisions on what products to offer, even what policies the regulators should be considering if you don't really know who your client base, who your user base is. Um, I always love to, look, to point to the government of Chile, which for over 30 years has been collecting, you know, dutifully in the banking superintendency has been collecting gender disaggregated data. And it's been a real boon to financial service providers. They found that, you know, when men, you know, sort of men's incremental borrowing would tend to be for consumption, women would take longer to borrow, but would almost, you know, without exception, would borrow for homes, either to buy or to improve their, their housing. That changes the way a financial service provider reaches out to women, the kinds of things that they can package together to approach women. So that gender disaggregated data is just huge. And then lastly, I'd say that there's that, that barrier that is only addressable through policy change. We still see really crummy credit infrastructure for women. The vast majority of um, banking systems throughout the developing world require physical property or land to be the only acceptable collateral against which to write a loan. So we've been very involved. The World Bank has been quite a, a good partner with us in driving movable collateral registry, something we take for granted in this country. But being able to use, you know, uh, the piece of equipment that you're actually borrowing for or your accounts receivable as collateral against a loan is huge. Women are still really denied the ability to own property in their own names or inherit property and, and still too many countries, identification, that unique ID. And as more of our services and our products in the, the government sphere and the private sector are moving online, if you don't have a digital ID, if you even have a paper ID, 
you know, you're just going to be denied access. I'm hearing a lot in that answer. On the one hand, I'm hearing that some of the challenges have to do with data and information. They have to do with the infrastructure supporting lending globally. You know, it has to do with not enough of a more bespoke tool and optic into society, into the societies, the very different kinds of societies in which women live their daily lives. And all those different sort of kinds of stumbling blocks or challenges, whether or not they be economic, whether or not they be financial in terms of infrastructure, whether or not they be societal, whether or not they be technological, all seem to be these very different touch points at the same time at which you have growing, frankly, suite of services even within the microfinance space. So, you know, when, when we sort of take a step back and to, you know, go and, you know, and our listeners can listen to our, our earlier episode on microfinance where we talked about the origins of microfinance and we talked about this idea of going and creating small loans to some of the neediest people in the world and to pull them together and the kinds of responsibility and, and the community responsibility people would feel about repaying those loans and the excellent credit quality that some of those communities and those individuals in those communities would have as to repaying those 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 uh, debts, you know, the micro financial aspect of things. When, when you think about that last challenge, that seems to be a, a, a continuing thread, this, this technology challenge, you know, where is that fitting both in your book and today when you think about microfinance? I mean, microfinance has gone a long way from people traveling to some of the most remote areas of the world to, to make sure women have access to uh, capital. Uh, we have a digital economy, as you just noted. You know, what is the role technology is, is playing now in that question of access to capital? What does it look like now? And are you seeing any particular tools that may be more helpful than others? Well, it's nothing, technology, digital technology, the having that cell phone in your pocket has been nothing short of, of transformative, transformational for the whole subject of, of financial inclusion. But what it's also really meant, I, I see it, is that you know, financial service providers have very many fewer places to hide because you've now brought the unit cost of delivering those services down to a place where, okay, I get it. In the old days, it cost a lot to put, you know, a bricks and mortar branch up that the individual deposits that a, a poor person might make are very small and would require, you know, you have to send a bank statement for every every deposit that's made. But now that, that cost has really gotten within the realm of the possible. And so it's it really has changed the conversation around who provides financial services you know, Women's World Banking has done some really exciting work with a number of fast-moving consumer consumer goods companies. You know, those people, those organizations have a direct pipeline into villages, into the lives um, of both men and women. Why can't they be agents for providing financial services? And indeed, they are. The, the digital financial service agents networks are, you know, are legendary and are, become, are really becoming critical to the delivery of those services. I think fintech, though, to, to get to the name of uh, this podcast, is really shaking things up in some very, very exciting ways in, in that once information about women, as I you know, was saying before, credit infrastructure is, is really not been very women friendly. Um, the 
majority of credit bureaus in the developing world only report on 5% of the transactions that are, are conducted. So if, if you're even if you're a bank with good intentions and you want to lend to, to women, you can't find any information out about those companies. Cell phone data, alternative sources of data that are being used to drive credit scoring for a number of different fintech models, very, very exciting. We're also seeing some of the, these new embedded finance models being very exciting for, for women. Women's World Banking has, a, has two impact investment funds, and we're just about to, uh, to hopefully conclude an investment in a company that actually doesn't lend to the woman shop owner. She, they lend directly to the, the snack foods and beverage uh, distributors that are selling to her. But they're creating both a credit score, credit information based on her inventory control. They've got, um, you know, technology sitting inside her business, but they're also then reporting how she's doing, how her, what she's borrowing sort of through them in kind and then selling. They're reporting that information to the credit bureau so she can build up that, that credit score. They, so we're seeing them not only as the providers of of finance, but as important bridges into that larger financial system. What's really great about that story, is, and when you think about alternative data, is is you're you're pointing out that the uh, alt part of that data, you know, it, it's not just something that naturally can address uh, wealth and 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 income uh, differences. You know, people just may shop in different places. And uh, you know, borrow money from different sources based off of their their income or wealth. But you're also sort of pointing the fact that you know there may be some very real gender differences defined societally in terms of where people shop and and live their commercial lives. And if you can develop credit scores and alternative data models uh, to capture that, you know, you, you end up with a with a better product. You know, this brings me to one reason why I just love this book. I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I mean, you have plenty of stories, excellent narratives about things that you've been involved in in different parts of the world but you know this book isn't like just like an inclusion book i mean you're you're making a very clear business case for inclusion and you know you you are being very clear about businesses leaving money on the table uh, when it comes to the provision of financial services. And, you know, I'm struck by the, your, your your first remark about saying, you know, they have nowhere to hide. But I'm also equally struck by the fact that you're assembling all these other folks who understand that there's a, 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 an opportunity. Maybe you can just sort of tie those two strings together to, you know, give us some sense of, of, of where the opportunity lies for microfinance given this technological shift, the fact that you can serve more people at a lower unit cost, you know, what does that mean in today's economy? And frankly, you know, when you look at a much more troublesome economy before us, you know, uh, what does that mean as the global economy uh, potentially decelerates? No, obviously, we're all very, very worried (laughs) about about that latter. I think you know, we've, we've been talking, you know, about and around in this conversation about the technology, like with so many things during these past two and a half years of, of pandemic, technology and digitization, the level of digitization of a financial service provider became a huge dividing line of how they 
prospered or didn't during the crisis and how they're now the, the COVID crisis and how they're now coming out of it. And, you know, frankly, the traditional microfinance institutions were quite slow to digitize. They really didn't see how that, um, you know, their, their stock in trade of being close to their clients really was going to translate technologically. So then you have lockdown. There's no way for that, you know, picturesque group of women to meet under the tree and, you know, uh, repay their loans every month. It was those institutions that had made some investment, whether it be in in disbursements of loans or collections of loans and some digital linkage to their clients that were able to stay closer to those clients that did see, and in in pretty much every developing country market, you saw moratoriums on loans, microfinance institutions, you know, did not get paid for over a year. They're now working through, most countries have given a year um, workout period. I don't think there, I think there are a lot of countries where we're never going to see those loans, those loans repaid. But if you had that digital connection to your client, you, at least you had a, you had a prayer, you had a, you had a, had a hope. And what, what we found in so many cases, and primarily in our investment portfolio, we were able to get close enough to see this. We saw many women all too aware of how likely it could be they would lose that access to credit if they didn't, even in a moratorium situation, if they didn't repay. We saw women maintaining higher repayment rates even during moratoria. Um, I just am back from Bolivia. I was there last week. Bolivia had the longest um, moratorium of any of any development, developing country. It was 16 months. And if people wanted to pay, they were actually not allowed to make repayments on loans. So it was really quite difficult for financial institutions. And it was only those that had digital means of staying in touch with clients and and staying close to them and now are restructuring loans. The bank I was visiting is doing really well with their post-COVID portfolio because they were able to stay in touch. You you also talk about insurance, right? Which is something I don't think we've really gotten into even in our own uh, conversations offline. And I thought that that portion of the book was, was pretty interesting. You know, conceptually, as a practitioner, as someone who is on the front line of, of all kinds of uh, global challenges, how does the conversation on insurance differ from the conversation on access to capital? I mean, are, are there different kinds of questions or policy considerations that you need to ask just at an overall level, but also when it comes to women? That's such a great question. And, and maybe it'll let me take a bit of a step back. Um, we have a, a wonderful partner in Jordan, a microfinance institution called Microfund for Women. And they had asked us to help them design this loan that they were calling, I think it was something like a, a maternity loan or something. If you were a good, a client in good standing for, I think, three years, and you became pregnant, their their client base is exclusively women, became pregnant, you were eligible for a loan. And, you know, we love the management of this organization, but this just didn't make sense. This is like, 
a point at which, you know, a woman is probably going to be stepping back from her business. And this is the point that you're going to load her down with more debt. And is the debt going to be used for the business? Is it going to be do- used for the hospitalization? So we said, you know, let, let's, let's pick this apart. What's really the need that we're trying to serve? And it became just, you know, totally clear when we had the conversation with the women that what they wanted was something that would cover the sort of non some of the non-medical costs, the time away from business. Um, in, in Jordan, for example, many of this institution's uh, women, um, husbands had been in the military, so they were, they were cared for in the military hospital, but medications, nursing care, any special diet, any special food they had while they were in the hospital, all of that had to be covered by the family. And so what, what really made more sense, particularly since we found out that the women were saving 10 to 15% of monthly income to cover exactly those costs, it just made so much more sense. Don't lend to them. Don't indebt them further. Don't make them pay 10 to 15% a month into a savings deposit. Provide a, a, a an insurance product that has a much lower mo- monthly premium and that will pay out on that uh, that hospitalization. You know, when I I'm not an insurance person, but when I talk to insurance folks, they say, "Oh, that's not health insurance. That's business interruption insurance." And and they're right, but it's triggered by this health emergency, which was literally and not and it's only it's not only required in um, in pregnancy. The women very quickly in Jordan, as well as the other seven countries we've rolled this product out, immediately said, I need to have my husband covered under this. I need to have my, my rest of my family covered. Those health emergencies were what was causing people to fall back into poverty. Listening to this conversation, as is always the case, you know, you're, you're sort of moving across different dimensions. Here, it's just you know one economic question and then you know what happens in a person's personal life and then how does that impact the ultimate financing and both quality of life and credit quality you know of a borrower but you also you know ask bigger questions even across social categories and economics and and you ask a really interesting question about whether or not financial inclusion in effect subjects women to more or less physical danger you know which was a really interesting and important question could you Tell me a little bit about where that question came from and, you know, obviously without ruining everything in terms of the book, maybe tell us one or two observations yet. So why I really, I'd say probably the chapter that I, it was kind of like, I most wanted to write, but I struggled most with it, how to frame was this issue of empowerment. What does it mean? It's such an overused word. Does it, is there any way to really identify what it is about finance that empowers a woman. I certainly know from my own experience, so many choices that I have been privileged enough to make have been because of financial independence that I've been able to have over my, over my career. And so I start, you know, if you read the chapter, you start to sort of go through the, the, um, you know, the traditional definitions of empowerment and the way that, you know, things like property ownership or having accounts in your own name and all, you know, is a paid employment more empowering than than entrepreneurship. So I, I sort of ask all of those questions, but it feels like 
I must ask the question. I, I felt it was incumbent on me to say, but at the end of the day, is a woman safer in her own home, safer in her workplace if she has greater access? Or is the fact that she's got that money in her own name, does that put her at greater risk? And I was, I, I, I won't spoil the, the punchline, but I was really, really sorry to see how equivocal the, the research is. And, you know, in my call to action at the end of the book, uh, that's my main one for researchers, that seminal piece of research on women's empowerment and gender-based violence hasn't been written and really needs to be. If we are going to talk about whether a woman has physical security and financial security, and I think that this, you know, is maybe one of the themes, both in our mini conversations, and you certainly see it at times in the book, is really thinking holistically about microfinance as both an opportunity and, you know, with lots of different elements in it, one of which, again, is that social element. And, and one is like the family element and, and the personal element and, and trying to think through where do economics fit with institutions and market uh, dynamics, and then where does all that fit with this this larger question of of the role of government? You know, and, and in this particular instance is uh, you know a question about whether or not I suppose microfinance should be paired with other kinds of social services. I mean, have you seen questions like that in other arenas where microfinance and the larger sort of again governmental or even market based social services issue pops up? What immediately comes to mind is is sort of what we've seen over the course of, of COVID um, and how COVID relief has probably been one of the greatest drivers of financial inclusion that we've, we've ever seen. In India, for example, um, their first round of COVID relief payments were made payable only to women and only digitally. And literally within, you know, three weeks of that first lockdown in March, 2020, you had 25 million new digital bank accounts opened, mostly by women. Um, that's powerful. And I, I, you know, as I keep saying to my, my team, we have these people in the system now, now we have to keep them there, they're included. But what we've seen in a couple of other countries, Indonesia, probably, you know, most notably, um, you've, you know, you've seen countries that have had these very large conditional cash transfer programs that, you know, they, the typical way they're structured is if you um, take your kid for preventive health care checkups and make sure that they're in school on um, a regular basis, you're entitled to a, a payment. The majority of those are paid to women around the world. Certainly in, in Indonesia, they had, you know, millions and millions of recipients of this, this payment. Uh, sort of on a dime, they'd already digitized it. So on a dime, they had sh they shifted it to a COVID relief payment, and they paid more money. They paid more frequently. I think it, it's um, every six weeks, and they went to monthly. And the first question the women were asking, which was fascinating, was, "Well, this is a lot more money than I'm used to getting. My kids actually aren't in school because of lockdown. They're not. You know, I don't want to take them to the doctor because because of lockdown. Is there a way I can save this money?" And you know, just this whole natural next question of of savings, and 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 how can I use this account that you've given me to 
you know, to, to provide security, to provide resilience, who knows how long this thing is going to last, was such an extraordinary opportunity. And interestingly, now we're in a great dialogue with the Indonesian government. Like, how do we how do we start to graduate these these women out of this? Is there an opportunity to maybe take the last three payments or something and use them as a guarantee for a loan so she could take an entrepreneurial loan? I mean, it, it, there's all sorts of creative conversations going on, but I think that that government relief mechanism that sprung up during COVID, there's some really exciting things that, that have been done and that can be done coming out of it. So before we, we end, you know, your experience is very much a global one, you know, and and again, your experience is truly phenomenal. When you when you look at these lessons that you're learning in different parts of the world, you know, to what degree do you think that they apply to the United States? Are there any particular insights that you, that you view are, are especially worth consideration here? Oh, very much so. In fact, um, my, my initial proposal to MIT had, uh, had a chapter, at least, on um, issues in the United States. We decided not to go forward with it, but I have to say, even just a little bit of research I did it's my second book. I, I have to write this because it's not so much an issue of financial inclusion so much here. I think 97% of the population has a, has a bank account and women actually, there's a gender reverse gender gap. More women have bank accounts than, than men, but of financial health. And this is where we see not just the pay gap having really, you know, lifelong, lifelong implications for women, but also the, the wealth gap and the fact that while well, women now are, you know, up to the lofty goal, you know, lofty levels of 80% of what men on average earn in terms of, of wealth, women only have 40% of wealth, the wealth of white men. When you add race and ethnicity, those numbers go down to very low double and single digits for, for women of color, for Latinx women. And that wealth gap just drives, you know, so much later on in life, women are much less likely to, to have jobs given they are more, more represented in, in part-time work to have jobs that allow them 401ks. So you have the population of women over 60 as being the population in the United States that's going into poverty fastest. They they come in and out of the workforce, they learn earn less while they're in the workforce, and they live longer than men. So there's all sorts of inequalities at the financial level that um, you know that, that women are suffering from in this country. The exciting thing, though, lots of really interesting tech-enabled solutions are coming at this problem, and I'm, I'm eager to learn more about them myself. Mary Ellen Iskandarian, your book, There's Nothing Micro About a Billion Women Making Finance Work for Women. It was, as I mentioned offline, a really excellent read, A-plus uh, writing from the law professor. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I want to say again, you know, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for your work. And thanks so much for taking the time to, to write this really excellent book. Thank you, Chris. Really great to see you again. In the 100 plus episodes of this podcast, Mary Ellen Iskandarian is one of my favorite people to interview. And it's not because she's an internationally acclaimed legend, though that is pretty cool. 
but because she cares enough to put herself in the shoes of so many different kinds of people, whether it be the unbanked women in rural areas, their husbands, and yes, global investors. And this is reflected in page after page in her book and bolstered by data and a keen eye sharpened from years of work on the ground. So we at The Beat can only commend Mary Ellen for a life well-lived and a book extremely well-written and hope that you, our networked super listeners, might take a page from that book and apply some of her lessons, which no doubt have relevance regardless as to whether or not you're in Santiago, Silicon Valley, or Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.